And welcome everyone to another episode of The Full Life. And today we have a special celebration. It's our 50th show. And just like all the other shows, we're going to be our faith sharing group together to refine our faith. Today, we'll be talking about diversity in generations. So stay tuned. Different Christian perspectives coming together to have important conversations about our faith and help you live in the fullness of life God wants for you each and every day. This is The Full Life with Joseph Mancuso, Hank Johnson, and special guest host Tina Webb. The conversation starts now. And welcome back to another episode of The Full Life. We are so excited that you're here celebrating our 50th show with us. Each and every episode, we try to refine our faith together as a faith-sharing group to do just that, to get you filled up a little bit more with God's grace, God's love, God's mercy, really give God the presence of God to you a little bit more each and every show. And we will do that by talking about topics at the center of faith and culture, and today will be no different. We, of course, invite you to follow us on social media, whether it be through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, or our audio podcast version. We'd love to continue to connect and engage with you there. And we always like to begin each show with an encouraging word and encouraging message from the Bible. And today's will come from our guest host, Tina Webb. Thank you, Joseph, for having me. Today's encouraging word is from Isaiah 53 verses two through five. A few weeks ago, before we celebrated uh, the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, I was sharing with my 10-year-old out of this passage. It's a passage that we usually use in the context, as I said, of, of Resurrection Day, Easter, that was a few weeks ago. However, when you look at this passage, there's so much encouragement because Jesus understands what we go through. He understands how and why we feel the way we do at any given moment, he is El Roy, the God who sees. As I was talking with my 10-year-old, I was trying to help him understand, as all parents do, we're trying to help our young children know Jesus and appreciate who he is, and um, the fact that he's a relatable God. And so as I was going through this passage, I was relating to my young boy how relatable Jesus is for him. In verse 2, it says, he had no former majesty that we should look at him. And you know, in 10-year-old, 11-year-old, 12-year-olds, tweens, puberty, teenage years, we all go through that feeling where that stage where we don't feel like we're attractive and we long for people to look at us. And Jesus understands that. There's no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus had a longing to be desired. He was despised and rejected by men peers, cancel culture, being misunderstood. We all deal with these things. And Jesus did too. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus wept. We know that scripture. And I conveyed to my, my, my little boy that, you know, Jesus knows sorrow. He knows grief. From the moms and dads, maybe who are waiting for their prodigals to come home, he understands grief. For someone who's been dealing with sickness or, or lose, losing a loved one, Jesus understands our grief. He's a relatable God. And so I just want to encourage you, if you're going through something or you feel hopeless, Jesus is there. He sees you. He sits with you. He understands. And, and we can rejoice that our resurrected king 
every day of our life knows how we feel. I hope this has blessed you. And it's just an encouraging word to give you hope and vision as you go day by day. What a unique and special God we serve that he can be so relatable to us. Uh, and so well, thank you for that message, Tina. Also, welcome back, Tina, for the show. It's good thank to see you, you again. Uh, we're happy to have you as our guest host today. And I wanted to, I think it's a perfect topic for you because we were talking about different generations. And we're talking about ministering and talking and, and preaching to different generations and how it might be different. And I know in your ministry, you deal a lot with families of, and members of different generations. And of course, Hank was a pastor, a former youth pastor, now a senior pastor. I'm sure you deal, deal with that all the time. So the question I, I really have to, for you guys to start the conversation today is when, when have you encountered it, you know, or was there a moment or when have you encountered a situation where you either had some difficulty communicating across generations or you really learned, there was a moment where you learned something about how to do that? Every day, actually, my home, my oldest daughter is 30 and my youngest son is 10. So I have millennials. Apparently, I have Y and X. Believe me, uh, it's daily having to convey and talk to two different generations, two different sets of experiences. So much has changed in the last 20 years. And then I represent Generation X, you know, my own context and filter. So um, daily, I find myself having to um, really ask for help from the Lord to uh, communicate with each child well. <laughs> what a unique experience where you have this, your own children of those different generations. That's very, that's very interesting. You could see it in your own house. I kind of had the um, slow, um, almost like the, the frog in the water uh, when you turn up the heat. I was in youth ministry for probably 10 to 12 years and didn't realize it, right? Because every day was a new day. Um, every meeting together, there was a new youth and a new family to connect with. So I don't think I realized how much it was impacting even how I did ministry until I got out of youth ministry. And it was interesting, about six months after, I walked into the youth room just to see what they were doing. And I looked around, even though I knew the kids, I'm just like, oh, this is different. Um, but I think the biggest place it probably shows up now is I have a pretty huge extended family. And so one of the challenges in our family is that, you know, most of us older ones are born in Africa, but raised here. And so it's not just generational, but it's even just perspective of being born in America and raised on this side. But just seeing their values and, and systems and the way they see the world and the way they, they think about faith or don't think about faith, I think all of those have been kind of consistent with seeing the differences. For me, I feel like it was a slow burn happening. Just even building community within a church community, I think you really have to address uh, the differences in generations. I mean, I wasn't preaching from a pulpit, but being a part of a being a part of a church community and even doing a community event where you you're welcoming the public in a community event that had been 60, 65 years in the making. You know, there's a certain way that that the people that have been doing it for 60 years want to keep doing it. And I was sort of brought in as seeing if we could keep this event going and thriving, but also change it a bit. And it was a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful thing to go through because I really learned how to honor and, and thank the pre previous generations for saying, thank you for what you've given, because we wouldn't be even able to receive this if you hadn't taken it this far. And hear them and hear their spirit and make sure you're protecting that spirit of the community 
And then they, I have found that you can see how they will see you. They enjoy seeing the next generation really get involved. And so that if you can honor and, and show how you're continuing that spirit in a new message. For me, that's what was really effective for me in that particular instance. And that's really what I think of when I, I saw really how generations can work together. But it is work. You have to communicate differently and you have to honor the different generations. And that is exactly what is the topic of our guest's book today. So let's introduce him now. Daryl E. Hall is campus pastor of Elizabeth Baptist Church in Conyers, Georgia, where he regularly preaches and teaches across five generations. He is an experienced preacher and public speaker who has given messages in venues from local Bible studies to a packed NBA arena. Hall has a doctorate in ministry from Beeson Divinity School, where his doctoral research focused on generational intelligence and effective intergenerational communication. He and his wife, Ebony, have three children. Please welcome Dr. Daryl E. Hall. Hi, Daryl. Welcome to the show. Hey, Daryl. Welcome to the show. So I want to dive in and let's go first into your, your work as a campus pastor and your, your previous pastoral experience and how that all sort of led to this book and this topic. Yeah, great question. So my church is in a multi-site church model where we have five campuses in the metro Atlanta area. And I had the unique opportunity of becoming the first campus pastor. So for the first four campuses, our senior pastor essentially would uh, you know, move around town on Sunday mornings and cover all campuses. And at that time, I was youth pastor, actually, for about five years, and I was doing similarly for the youth. So moving around Atlanta on Sunday mornings, addressing youth in multiple venues uh, multiple times a week. And so once I was promoted to campus pastor, uh, I was stationary at one campus, but I noticed a change in the dynamic of the people I was addressing. I was 28 years old at the time, and most of the people in my congregation were Generation X and Boomers, you know, old enough to be my parents and my grandparents. And I went through a tough adjustment as uh, as a preacher and communicator, trying to find my voice, trying to find my own comfort. And my desire, even as a 20 something pastor, was to be someone that people twice my age could take seriously and could appreciate. Uh, the effort and the seriousness that I put into, you know, my uh, my role as pastor. And so that whole transition, not wanting to lose my grip on being able to connect with youth, uh, but also wanting to mature and grow in my ability to connect with people twice my age. And 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 that baptism by fire, uh, I think, was the impetus behind me writing this book. Yeah, I just really wanted to know what a, a brief structure of the book was, and so people can get an idea of what they can expect. Yeah, the book has um, many chapters, but I think it has three main sections, if I had to think about its structure. In the beginning, my desire is to bring hope and encouragement to communicators of all generations who may be feeling the pains of not being able to reach a specific uh, age group. And so I try to do that through personal stories and through explaining, defending and championing generational science as a tool for communicators and for preachers. And then the meat of the book is uh, I dedicate a chapter to each living American generation, elders, boomers, Xers, millennials and Gen Z. 
And so I dedicate a chapter to each of those adult generations, those generations at the time of my writing already had uh, you know, adults in their population. And we look at some of the sociological factors that I believe shaped that generation as a people group, as a, uh, as a culture, and also that I believe influenced what I ultimately define as a language that generation prefers to hear messages in. And then I end the book with some practical applications and ways beyond preaching and communication that intergenerational efforts can help benefit the church. Daryl, I just have to say, I enjoyed what I was able to read of the book. Fantastic, very much needed. So thank, thank you, you for, for writing it. Um, what I want to ask you is, you know, your experience and your research highlighted very clearly that each generation has a language that they prefer. Um, however, there are some overall characteristics that seem to resonate across the generations. So if you could talk about those characteristics and explain them for our listeners just a little bit. Yeah. So, Tina, in the beginning of the book, I try to deal with some of those characteristics as, you know, to give hope to the readers early on that could at least begin to implement this. This is an easier implementation, I think, by comparison uh, to to learning the language of the generations and ultimately how to reason with them rhetorically. And so some of those things. One of them is simplicity. Another one is teaching. These characteristics are things that we can implement immediately that go deeper than aesthetic makeovers, go deeper than redesigning your worship space. It goes deeper than, you know, wardrobe changes in an effort to look younger or older, depending upon what age group you're in and which one you're trying to reach. An additional one is, you know, no emotionalism and no manipulation in the process of preaching. Uh, to come Love out that of this, that space. Love that of, one. That's <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, Joseph, to come out of that space of being hyper mystical uh, in the sense that you preach with some, you know, sanctimonious superiority, that, that you're in some way closer to God or uh, that you are, you know, in some kind of way above the people spiritually. Recently on this show, we had a conversation just talking about um, the significance of, of following the verses as to, to be in the world and not of it. And, mm -hmm. and what that meant, especially as we engage with culture. In the book, you identify a few different views on, on Christ and culture, but then you also suggest a way in which culture can be a transformative tool to preaching the good news. Can you share a little bit about that? I think many of us, those of us who've gone to seminary are somewhat familiar with Niebuhr's uh, Christ and culture, you know, options. And as I was going through this research, I was challenged not to, not in a critique of Niebuhr's thoughts in any way, but to think a step beyond it, hopefully creatively, uh, to see that, that Christ can be for culture. And what I mean by that is the amoral aspects of culture. I think we can make the mistake of false dichotomies in trying to put things in these buckets where they must stay as either secular or sacred. And I think we do that in cultural ways that hinder our ability to get creative and become more effective in the way that we communicate. I believe that God created the world, obviously, and he gave us creative license as vice regents, uh, as being made in his image to to take what he created and make something of it, to, to produce from it. And I believe culture is one of those those things that people create and produce, which has a amoral, some amoral aspects. 
and the way I would argue that is we think about it eschatologically. When we go to the new the new earth, the new earth will have culture. There will be culture on the new earth. There will be languages and people groups and nations and feasts. <laughs> uh, you know, music. All of these are are amoral aspects of culture. So, Hank, I do believe that the Lord gives us more creative license and freedom through grace to uh, to be in the world but not of it, to understand culture and to use it. Uh, I would say strategically, wisely, in how we make culture a uh, a servant uh, of the gospel. Amazon uses generational science, which is why Amazon has been able to tap into the millennial generation's buying power with the distinct ability and success that some of its competitors have not been able to. So if Amazon can study the trends of millennials, their buying potential, their buying trends, their tastes, what they want, when they want it, and as a result, drive up the bottom line. I think the church should as well uh, consider generational science. Another way I've looked at it is just think about missionaries. You know, we can't just yeah. drop them in the middle of a place and know nothing about the generation, about the people, about the language, about the culture. Um, I think a lot of us think that missions work is only where we go, not where we are. Yeah. So I think even just adopting that mindset is another way to use both generational science, but then also common sense, right? Exactly. Um, to know that if I don't speak your language, I can't tell you about Jesus. <laughs> if exactly. I'm telling you about Jesus in English and you don't see or understand English, then am I really telling you about Jesus, for example? No. Uh, and yeah, and you. you know what, Hank, yeah. to that point, I, and I do go there in the book because my argument is that generations are people groups. And so just like to your point, you know, I wouldn't go to a Swahili pe speaking people and I'm only fluent in English and take the gospel to them without a translator. We should see ourselves as missionary to those we pastor and preach to. And as missionary, I am servant. That means my style, my approach is contextualized buzzword, right? To the group I'm trying to reach. And for preachers, particularly preachers, I believe in an American context, it's tough to do that because we mistakenly equate our style of communicating the gospel with the substance of the gospel. The way I've phrased it over the years was the message doesn't change or the package doesn't change, but the wrapping can change the way, you know, we can deliver it in a different way. Um, and so I, I totally agree. And, I, and to that end, you do say in the book exactly that the scriptures and the gospel are timeless, but the language of the age must be timely, yes. which I love. And you talk a lot about rhetoric and eloquence and how we can use it effectively and, and how we might not use it effectively. So first define uh, the rhetoric for us and, and how yeah. we might be able to use it effectively and then what we should look out for when we're when we're speaking. It is it is the way I, Daryl Hall, through my unique personality, are being used by the whole am being used by the Holy Spirit to persuade my listeners to listen, obey, or respond in kind to the biblical concept that I'm communicating. So rhetoric, by definition, the way I define it, is the art and skill of persuasion. Now, here's how it can be used effectively compared to ineffectively. Rhetoric is ineffectively used when it's not intentionally done. When I don't exert as much effort as I possibly can to understand who I am addressing, what I'm talking to them about, and the best possible way to serve them as speaker, then I have uh, I've ineffectively used rhetoric. 
And I think the mistake some preachers make is we read Paul and Paul says, you know, uh, I, I didn't come to you in oracle eloquence. I only came to you in the power of the gospel. Paul wasn't decrying oratory skills or eloquence or rhetoric. He was using it for his readers when he addressed and spoke in Athens, you know, Acts 17 to the, the uh, Epicureans and the Stoics. He is using the art and skill of rhetoric. What Paul was saying there is oratorical grandstanding. He wasn't trying to primarily be impressive or an entertainer oratorically. He wasn't trying to leave them spellbound and mystified and amazed. He wasn't saying don't use rhetoric. What he was saying is use a cruciform rhetoric. You know, take your motive as orator and nail it to the cross and employ every rhetorical skill you have for one purpose. That is to reach these people with this gospel. I love the fact that you put that. It's so important. I, you know, there are people even like myself who sometimes get put off by, as you well said, we can tell, you know, when someone's motives are are just incorrect. And so, um, yeah, that was very important for you to put in the book, and 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 it was very clear. So thank you for putting putting that in there. I want to shift just slightly. And and can we identify and outline the generations and what the study uh, revealed about them? Um, if you could start with the elders and then move to the baby boomer generations and, and start with what are some characteristics that define them? Uh, what societal and cultural movements or events shaped their worldview overall? And then finally, what do they prefer in preaching? When we talk about the elder generation, some call that generation silent or traditionalist. We're speaking of people who were born in 1945 or before. And the primary sociological experience that shaped them was uh, the Great Depression. And so experiencing the Great Depression, obviously the World War as well, shaped them also. Uh, they lived through very, very tough times and they had a built-in resiliency, I believe, from those tough times. Um, when we look at the, the trend or mechanism of communication during their coming of age years, which is what I define as, you know, 20-something, early 30-something, those years where they were really shaped, in my opinion, as a people group, uh, the, the way communication happened during that time was one-way communication. Many of them heard some of the most needful messages from presidents and spiritual leaders through radio. There's a one-way dynamic of, of communication. From that, you know, I deduce that their preference is for more of a propositional style preaching. And what I mean by propositional preaching is say what you're going to say based upon what the Bible has said. Don't flinch too much to the left or right. Don't chase many rabbits. And then when you're done saying what you told them you were going to say, remind them that's what the Bible said. It is a very direct, authoritative, powerful, rousing, one-way style of, of preaching. The next generation is baby boomers who were born between 1946 and 1964, which is, by comparison, one of the broadest windows. That's an 18-year window. And within that 18 year window, there was a, a boom <laughs> and these babies, you know, this generation, excuse me, was 
the largest generation in American history. It uh it was it was the generation around which the world reshaped itself as cities were being built and even churches were being planted and suburbs were being developed. And so what I describe about baby boomers is baby boomers, because the world shaped itself around their preferences in almost every area, there was a somewhat of a moving away from this, this propositional view of things towards what I describe as a skeptical view of things. And when I say skeptical to describe the language of boomers, what I mean is a hint of tease. So boomers intentionally moved away from life as, as it was given to them, uh, not just in their morals and values, but also geographically. So they still appreciate propositional communication, except you don't have to hit the nose right on the head. You can give some skepticism, give some tease, get, get, get a little, move a little bit away from just hitting the nail on the head. But as you conclude, move back to, you know, a sure and clear con conclusion, also with some practical application in there. A good example of this is C.S. Lewis's trilemma of Jesus. Is he liar? Is he lunatic? Or is he Lord? If I was preaching to a room full of boomers right now, people born between 46 and 64, that would be the title of a message. I want to talk today, Jesus, liar, lunatic, or Lord. <laughs> and, I, and I'm willing, I'm willing to, uh, to bet many of them would lean in. Third of all, Generation X is the generation between about 65 and about 79 depending upon what, what bracketing you see. And what's interesting about Gen X is Gen X was the smallest generation in American history. And Gen X came up during the time in the 80s, 70s and 80s, where many of the institutions that they were told to have faith in failed them. And so, you know, a large amount of their parents were divorced to the tune of north of 50%. You know, this concept of latchkey kids became a, a true reality with Gen X. Uh, you know, government and, and, and major spiritual leaders were leading people astray. They also came of age during the time professionally where many of the major firms that they worked for, um, you know, bankrupted people who had whole life savings in 401ks tied up in these firms while <laughs> CEOs floated away on golden parachutes. And so this it's a step beyond skepticism to quite frankly being traumatized in many ways and having to protect self. They're also uh, receiving more information through the internet and uh, you know post-secondary degrees. So at the same time they're being equipped with knowledge, they're being let down in their area of trust. And that knowledge now becomes the uh the guard wall around their heart and their faith and the only way through that guard wall is to appeal to their knowledge and intellect meaning xers will fact check you and if you are found lacking <laughs> in your intellect in your facts in your history uh in your approach you lose credibility almost instantly and so I believe with Gen X, intellectual preaching is 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 the language, meaning 
you got to have some extra biblical sources. You have to have a definite structure and rhetorical approach. They have to be able to follow your train of thought. They have to be able to to hear that you have studied. Uh, they have to be able to respect that you respect, you know, their mind, their brains, and and their own intellectual point of view through the appropriate use of eloquence, words we say and don't say, uh, terms we use and don't use. So that's how I describe Gen X. What I love about your book, you know, obviously you wrote it for those who are preaching Sunday morning services, Christian leaders who are speaking regularly. But I love the fact your information is actually helpful for anyone. I'm 52. My mother's 72. And I have a 102 year old grandfather who's still living. His birthday was last week. So those nice. are three separate generations that you have referred to. And reading your book actually helped me understand the differences that I've encountered with my mother and my grandfather and myself in terms of our faith, uh, just the way we live our faith, what we expect of out of church. And so, you know, this is really a book for anyone that I think anyone can benefit from. 100%. So I just want to say well Woo. done. I love that. Thank you so much. I mean, you just affirm me in a way that that was that was my heart's prayer. Oh, yeah. Well, we're all called to preach, right? That's our, yeah, that's our yeah, great commission. Yeah. We're all supposed to be doing that. Right, right, right. <laughs> uh, so millennials, which is my generation, some some tag us between 80 and 2000, others between 83 and 98. We are we are the largest generation. So we we usurp boomers in that more live births. And at the time of my writing, we had the larger population by contrast to boomers. And so in the same way that the world reshaped itself to the preferences of boomers, we see it currently doing that to millennials. Many major cities are building intentionally live, work, play uh, environments to attract millennials. Many major cities like the one I live in, uh, Metro Atlanta, are projecting that within the next three years, more than 50 percent of its workforce will be the millennial generation. Millennials were born as post-Christianity really began to seep into mainstream American thought. And so we, we <laughs> in our nurseries, there was, you know, bottles, diapers, and post-Christian <laughs> ideology. I describe our language as dialogical. So preaching for millennials has to be dialogical. If I want to get to a proposition to a crowd of millennials, I got to come through dialogue, intellect, and skepticism towards proposition. Dialogical communication is necessary because here's the main factor. Millennials, we have we have grown up in a world where our voices we perceive <laughs> are as authoritative as the voices of people who have credential to speak on certain subject matters for the simple fact of social media. You know, no longer do we sit around the TV to wait for the nightly news to hear what you know, Brokaw has to say about what happened at the Capitol on June 6th. Uh, we're going to get on our own social media, pontificate, opine, debate. <laughs> I mean, we saw uh, it in real time. I was, I yeah. was watching, like, what am I watching? You know, like, yeah. Real, other people are streaming real time, and I'm giving my comment, commentary real time, and I don't need an authoritative voice to interpret these events right. for me. And so, what that sounds like in preaching is the preacher, the preacher, excuse me, has to sound like a listener. 
Remember, we're moving on this continuum from propositional, skeptical, intellectual. Now that I'm in this, this dialogical range, I have to be transparent as a preacher about where I even struggle. Whereas before, for a preacher to admit struggle in a sermon, particularly a propositional sermon, is to lose credibility. <laughs> the more mystical you are, the more credibility credibility you have now for my generation um the more human you are the more credibility you have which means even be honest with us about how you struggle to accept or assimilate the biblical principle that you are asking us to give consideration to you know one of the things i like to say there's a, a local restaurant near my church that when i really want to get to a place of dialogue hey this is not dr hall preaching at you at church this is me and you sitting over some chicken and waffles at nana's I, I understand. I hear you. I feel you. I, too, have been in that place. And as I prepare this message, I'm going to be honest, I struggle in this area because this seems so impossible. Why would the Lord require us to forgive people 70 times seven? I mean, what if, you know, they hurt me on purpose and begin to take my forgiveness as a sign of weakness? How do I guard myself emotionally and practice this 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 Christ like ethic? So then if I'm struggling with forgiveness, I got to give them a, a practical life example of someone in my life who hurt me repeatedly and what that journey was like. It is to preach with with gratitude that you would allow me these moments. Would you consider? Could you think from a different point of view? I acknowledge and affirm this idea. But would you at least listen to Jesus's idea on this subject? That's how dialogical preaching sounds. And then last of all, Gen Z. Gen Z are those born between about 99 to about 2012. And at the time of, uh, of this research and writing, they were just now coming of legal age. So 18, 19, 20, 21. And the language I believe that shapes Gen Z is relational. And I think the major factors that have shaped Gen Z is the continuum of the generations prior to them. Boomer children might accept an authoritative, you know, uh, directive from a parent. <laughs> and and be quiet as said directive is given and grow in their respect gen z mm -mm, they will feel dehumanized yeah i'm the child you're the parent but i am human we are there's a value there must be a mutual respect um they they've gone a step beyond dialogue their their thoughts and ideas are shared widely and broadly uh they they are step beyond millennials and not necessarily you know, needing an authoritative voice politically uh, or what have you spiritually to speak on a subject matter. And here's the thing about relational communication. <laughs> it's difficult to talk relationally if you can't be relational. Hmm. There could be a gap in persona between Dr. Hall and Daryl, you know, 45 years ago, and nobody would question that gap. As long as Dr. Hall shows up and says what thus saith the Lord, whatever Daryl may be doing or not doing is beside the fact for Gen Z. So interesting. It has to be one and the same. What I mean by that is if I want to connect with Gen Z, they have to see me as transparent and accessible. If they can go onto Instagram or Snapchat, and some of the most famous people in the world will give you a periscope into their daily lives uninhibited. If they can comment on their favorite celebrities post and may get a like or a reply or a repost, 
you know, who am I as a pastor of a small group of a couple hundred people to be above relating to them? I have to be Daryl, whether they catch me here, there, anywhere. There's not a new voice that I put on to sound more spiritually. No, it, it's the same communicative is, is me, is my voice, is my persona, is my wardrobe. Right, is V neck and ripped jeans. There's there's a there's a as little to no gap between who I am as Daryl and who I am as Pastor Hall. So the question becomes, how do we um as people who maybe are not working with a specific group or a specific generation or who have congregations on a Sunday morning or whenever you meet, um, that's intergenerational, like how do we then become a generational polygot when you're speaking to elders and Gen Z and the the, the, the generations in between and even the generations to come? Um, how do we share the good news of Jesus to an intergenerational people in this intergenerational church that serve a God who's really intergenerational? The first First step is to acknowledge that generational science has a place in, in spiritual things, in church, in preaching. All right. That's the first thing, because what it does is it, it keeps you in a posture of learning. Now, to your question about becoming uh, an intergenerational polyglot. So the first thing I would say is that we're all fluid in our own generational tongues. We may not be aware of it. This is the fish in water effect or syndrome, but we're all fluent our own generational tongues. And chances are we are also fluent in the tongue of the generation who shaped us. Because if our parents, mentors, bosses, teachers were of a similar generation, usually the one right before us, there are chances that we could we could go between those languages with more ease. Where I think it becomes difficult is the stretch to the generation right under us and any generational group that may be one generation separate from us. For a millennial pastor like myself, I should be able to move between intellectual and dialogical preaching with ease. That's not gonna require a lot from me, but to really understand elders and boomers, I have to really try hard. Because you know, like I have an iPhone that I get updated every year just because I want I don't understand the concept of great depression. <laughs> I have to I have to humble myself to appreciate struggle in a way that they experienced that I haven't and probably never will, who knows. I have to try harder. I believe it's one of these disciplines like preaching or medicine or law <laughs> or golf. You practice and then another thing is you can very practically, if you're a pastor of a church, you can do focus groups with the generations in your church based on the brackets I shared before. Ask open-ended questions, listen and learn and allow that to shape and influence you. That's a very practical thing you can do. Tim Keller says in his book, Center Church, he's talking about how to reach urbanites. He says to begin to speak to them, then they will start to show up. We know this ethnically, right? Like my church is full of African-American people. Why is that? Because that's who I speak to. If I want Hispanics in my church whose primary language is Spanish, I'm going to probably have to learn Spanish or get an interpreter or start a Spanish service before they start to show up. So the same is true generationally. The generation you want to target, begin to practice some of their language in your preaching before they show up and you create a space for them to show up. 
that can happen in series. You could do a series that targets millennials or you could do one concept like volunteerism and serving. And in a month, you could preach that same concept in four different languages. Propositionally, intellectually, you could do it that way. Or you could do what I try to do, Hank, which is I try to implement some of it every week. Um, you know, if I want to get to a proposition, I go through the door of dialogue. I believe that's the goal of preaching to get back to the proposition. Jesus is Lord. <laughs> Jesus is the only son of God. <laughs> Confess him and believe and you will be. That is a strong biblical proposition. How I get there, I try to get creative with it and, and implement those tools, you know, as I go. I think the fear some speakers have is if I start speaking to one generation, will I lose the other one that I'm already connecting to? And that's a real fear. But I, I think we can reduce or mitigate that fear if. We help that generation to see how, hey, during this series, we want to target the 30 somethings in our church. And even if you don't fall within that window, I want to encourage you to lean in because I want you to listen to how uniquely we approach this very important group in our church so that for the 30 somethings in your life outside of our church, you will feel more equipped. And how You see what I'm saying? So for Tina to say her mom is 72, her grandfather, I believe you said, is 102. She can see this dynamic at play in her family. Even if I'm not preaching to Tina's generation, if I'm preaching to her moms, I'm equipping Tina to better communicate with her mom or daughter or nephew or mentee. And so if I know I'm a targeted generation, for a certain window of time, I'm not leaving the other generations out. I'm training the other generations in real time of how to engage millennials on uh, on deep value-based concepts. And now let's turn to the fullness of prayer. I try to use these one breath prayers. You know, I try to take seriously what Paul said to pray without ceasing. What does that look like in a practical, you know, modern world? That can't mean, at least from my point of view, to always be in a place where you can assume a kneeling posture or, you know, light a candle, burn incense, wear a specific garment. Even though I respect and appreciate all of those traditions of prayer and elements of prayer, for me, it means these one, I almost tweak the God in prayer, you know, um, God, I thank you. You know, Lord, God, Father, forgive me, clarify my thoughts. These are an, an ongoing two-way communication between me and the Father. Almost from the time I wake up, I wake up most mornings before I even open my eyes. I tell God good morning and I try to relate to God. Allow the Holy Spirit to explore whatever pops up into my head, my soul, whatever I'm experiencing, you know, transparently and to and to to talk to him out of that vulnerability, that human vulnerability. You know, a, a humanity where the Lord is holding my hand, <laughs> walking me through, you know, the challenges of the day or you know, struggles that I'm having here or here um, in a very transparent way. I try my best not to hide anything from the Lord. You had to get something out of this today, everybody. I mean, there's so much there. Uh, Daryl, tell everyone where they can get this book. Yes, you can get Speaking Across Generations uh, on Amazon. You can also get it directly from my publisher, InterVarsity Press. Uh, ivpress.com i believe you can order it online they'll ship it right to you and, uh, and i hope it uh, i hope it blesses you oh and and you can get you can use a promo code fl22 to get 30 percent off and free shipping from ivpress.com for all of the people that are watching today hooray nice <laughs> um and then can they follow you can they follow you online where where can yes. they 
my primary platform is Instagram. I'm, I'm on Instagram and Twitter and also TikTok. And uh, my handle on all three is the same at I am Daryl Hall. I am D-A-R-R-E-L-L, last name Hall. You could also look me up on Facebook, first name, last name. Maybe it's a theory or maybe it's something that's dropped in my spirit. But I will say there, I, I feel like there's something beautiful God has done through the generations as we've sort of become gone from propositional to this more relational uh, aspect. You know, because we're meant to be in this really intimate, loving relationship with God, I feel like over the generations, the, each generation kind of moves closer and closer in that way. And I don't, I, you know, I don't know if that's something God's, I mean, God's doing, or it just happens to be what is, is happening in culture, but it would feel like the way God would want us to move to me. And, and it, mm. it, it doesn't make any generation good, bad, or other. It just feels like this is the way God's moving us closer and closer mm-hmm. to him as we go on each generation. And I want to say thank you, God. That's beautiful. And I'm so happy to be closer to you each and each each generation as we get there. So we'll see. Maybe, maybe that's what he's doing. And we're certainly trying to do that with all of you, bring you closer to God in each and every episode. I want to thank Daryl again. Uh, and go out and preach the good news, but use generational science so you can preach it effectively. And happy 50 episodes, guys. Here's to another 50 times 50 more. (laughs) We'll see you all next time for more conversation here on The Full Life.